Good morning. First Samuel 16 is the chapter I'd like you to turn to. Appearances can be very misleading. Over a hundred years ago, a man was walking through the town of Portsmouth, England, England's foremost naval port, With one arm, he was blind in one eye, and whenever he boarded a ship, a boat, he grew incredibly seasick. The odd thing is that he was a sailor. In fact, he was Lord Admiral Nelson, the foremost sailor in all of England. Nobody would have guessed looking at a guy like that. You can't judge a book by its cover. You can't judge an admiral by his cover. You can't judge an apostle by his cover. I've always been interested in the people that Jesus picked to be on his inner team of apostles. They are certainly people no one in business would have chosen for their corporation. I mean, Peter... He decided to become Jesus' personal counselor, didn't he? When Jesus tells Peter the plan of God, that he's going to Jerusalem, a part of the plan of God included being rejected and beaten and crucified. Peter steps in to rescue God. He says, no way, Lord, we're not going to let that happen. Thanks, Peter. The Mount of Transfiguration, another classic. It's an epic moment. Jesus is transfigured before his disciples with Moses and Elijah. And it's such a holy moment, it's time to just enjoy it. But Peter talks. And he says something so profound. He says, it is good that we are here. And God had to sort of interrupt him, didn't he? And say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, shh. He's the one to listen to, not you. Then there was James and John. They were sons of Zebedee, as described in the Bible. Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder because they wanted to call fire down from heaven and roast the Samaritans. These are Jesus' representatives, mind you. Then there was Matthew, the tax collector. If anybody hated anybody, everybody hated tax collectors. We still do, don't we? But Matthew was especially hated by the Jewish people. And there was one group of people that hated them more than anyone else. They were called zealots. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus picked Simon the zealot to be on the team with Matthew the tax collector. Then there was Thomas, Mr. Personality himself. When Jesus announces to the disciples they were going down to Judea, knowing it was dangerous, Thomas encouraged everyone when he said, let's go down to Judea and we'll die with him. Just the guy you want on the team. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was Thomas who doubted. Yet, these are the ones that Jesus hand-picked as his own. I was given a paper. I shared it some years ago and I found it again. To Jesus, the son of Joseph, Woodcrafter Shop, Nazareth from the Jordan Management Consultants in Jerusalem. Subject, Staff Aptitude Evaluation. 
The letter says, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through the computer, but we have also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted from the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings. They have both registered high on the manic depressive scale. <laughs> One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability, resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business mind and contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and innovative. Yes, we recommend Judas Iscariot as your comptroller and your right-hand man. We come to the drama in Bethlehem in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel when God is selecting a king. There is a vacancy on the throne of Israel. The king, Saul, has been rejected. And God is about to choose a new man. A leader is called for. And we'll read verse 1 first off. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Saul was the people's choice, if you remember. They wanted a king like other nations. And boy, did they get one. They got taxation without representation. They were slaves, many of them, to the pursuits of the king. And this guy, Saul, was filled with pride. It began as soon as he hit the throne. Chapters 13, 14, and 15 are disastrous. Now in chapter 16, a new king is going to be selected. You should know that though King Saul is rejected, he is still outwardly the king. By appearance only. You might say he's the shell of a king. Look back in chapter 15 for a moment. Verse 28. This is the confrontation Samuel and Saul had. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That marked the moment of the departure. God is looking for someone else. In fact, he's given it to someone else. You're out of here. He is still a king in appearance only. The Queen Mary was the largest vessel to cross the seas when it was launched in 1936. Through four decades in a world war, she served until she was converted to a floating museum and motel in Long Beach Harbor in California. When they converted her into such, they took the three smokestacks aboard the ship off to refurbish them. They wanted to repaint them and place them back. When they took them on the dock, the smokestack 
crumbled. The metal had rusted. Three-quarter-inch steel plating had rusted from within, and all that was left was 30 coats of paint, one after the other for many years. The substance was gone. The appearance, the paint, was there. Saul was nothing more than a royal paint job. He had the veneer of a king, but he had corroded from within. He had moved away from God. In the New Testament, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers, painted beautifully on the outside, corrupt inwardly. They were a paint job. It was all in appearance only. Now, the main problem with Saul is that he had eye disease, not E-Y-E, but capital I. He loved himself so much, like Narcissus, the Greek god in the myth, who stared at himself in a pool and was enamored with his own reflection. Saul quickly, beginning in chapter 13, becomes enamored with himself, loves himself, places himself upon the pedestal. I read this week about uh, an interesting thing that happened in Illinois, the Department of Motor Vehicle Department. You know how that you can get specialized license plates, uh, personalized license plates. The Department of Motor Vehicles in Illinois received a 1,000 applicants for the number one for people's cars. A 1,000 people wanted to have number one as their license plate. They were in a dilemma. The guy whose job it is to divvy these things out didn't want to disappoint 999 people. So he decided to disappoint all 1,000 and took it himself. (laughs) That's human nature, isn't it? Number one. That was Saul's nature, and he was rejected. And because of that, we have a prophet who is dejected. Look back in chapter 15 once again at verse 35, and we tie these chapters together by this narrative. Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? It's a strong word to mourn. It means literally to grieve for someone as if they have died. That's what this prophet felt like. It was as if Saul was his own son. He saw such potential in him. And now he's mourning because his son has moved away from God. The spiritual could have been was not. There were a couple of women who shared an apartment, I think back east, A fire broke out one night and killed them both. Interesting, this place was wired with smoke alarms. But they disconnected them the night before because they had a party in the house. Smoke from gas, cooking smoke, smoke from candles, etc. They didn't want to activate the alarm, so they disconnected it for the party. Didn't hook it back. A fire broke out, killed them both. Somewhere in Saul's life, from the time he was anointed up till this chapter, he deactivated his alarm. So that when the prophet rebuked him twice, so that when his own people confronted him in chapter 14, he was impervious to it completely. The alarm didn't go off. And Samuel the prophet knew it, and he breaks his heart. And so he mourns. 
I find it interesting that he had that response. You know, we might think he should have just gotten angry and said, you know, you're rejected and I'm glad because you're a jerk anyway, King Saul. It's about time God gets somebody better than you. But rather he mourns. It shows me that one of the marks of maturity is being sensitive to sin. In fact, is it not a barometer of the heart? And I just wonder, when we look at certain things, if we have just become so callous to them. We'll go see a movie and describe it. Oh, great movie, only 40 cuss words, three nude scenes, and a few people were slaughtered. But other than that, it was great film. What's happened? Have we deactivated the alarm? Sin, especially in such potential as Saul, grieved deeply the heart of the prophet Samuel. I draw your attention back to verse 1, because in the midst of all that, the king is rejected, the prophet is dejected. God says that he has selected a new boy. Fill your horn with oil, says God, and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel mourned. God says, I provided. Just when Samuel thought it's over, God says, I have a plan, Sam. And his name, well, he didn't know his name yet, but the answer is found in Bethlehem. You know that God is never without a plan. There is never a moment when God is out of control. Did you know that God never panics? He never sweats. He never chews his fingernails and wonders, now what am I going to do? He's got a plan. Whenever you see a leader fall or a church fold or a movement fade, God has something new up his sleeve. A great illustration of that is another prophet named Isaiah. He, along with the rest of Israel, mourned when their king, King Uzziah, died. Fifty-two years he sat upon a throne and was a great political leader. In fact, I bet a lot of people thought as long as we have a godly king, a Christian president, everything's going to be great. Well, he died and everybody panicked in the country. The throne is vacant. Who's going to lead our country? It was in that year, the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 6 of that book, I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Nobody's on the throne. God said, I am. I'm still on mine. I'm in charge here. You don't need to panic. I have a plan. A very, very good reminder. And so God says, I provided myself a king. Why? Why does God need a king, especially after the last one? Wouldn't it make more sense if the text read, I have provided myself as a king. Move over. I'm taking charge once again. Forget these human rulers. I've had enough of them. First one messed up. This country rejected me. I'm back in charge. I'm enacting my theocratic rule. He doesn't. He says, I provided myself a king, another person, another human. Now you're going to quickly read about David that he was not flawless, he was not perfect, he was flawed. He may not be as bad as Saul, but there were some bad things even in his life. So why does God need a person? 
Because, folks, God has confined himself to always using human beings as flawless, or excuse me, as flawed and imperfect as we are to do his work. He's limited himself to using people to rule nations, to pastor churches, to evangelize the world. With all of our problems and all of our sins and all of our failures, God has said, I have chosen to use people. It actually makes it more wonderful. It adds to the mystery, the fact that God chooses such poor instruments. Do you know that's part of his plan? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, Paul the Apostle says, You see your calling, brethren, how that there are not many wise after the flesh, not many noble, not many strong who are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the mighty. God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame those that are strong. God has chosen the base things, the things which are not. Why, Paul explains, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I love that. God has deliberately chosen weak problem people so that when the work gets done, God gets the greatest glory. It's sort of like this. Put a skilled physician in a modern operating room and give that surgeon a job to do, some surgical operation. They have access to the finest equipment, finest people around them, tools. They do a good job. We sort of expect it. We still admire their capabilities. But take that surgeon out on the mission field. Tell them to do the same operation, this time with a Swiss Army knife. If they can do it, don't you know we will admire even more the capability of that physician? Now limited to such primitive tools, able to perform so wonderfully. And so God has chosen the foolish things so that no flesh would glory in his presence. And so you see God do a wonderful work. And especially if you know the person that God uses, you step back and you go, wow, we know this guy. He's, he's a nut. But look at the work God is doing. Praise the Lord. It must be the Lord. I have selected, I have chosen a king for myself. The skill of the one doing the work is more dramatic when confined to primitive inferior tools. Let's move on in our text and see the lad that God has chosen. Verse 2, Samuel said, once God gives him the command, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me one that I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord had said. He went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Do you get the idea that everybody's a bit tense in this whole scene? Samuel's tense. He didn't want to go to Bethlehem. He's worried. What if Saul finds out? I'm getting another king. He won't like that. He remembers chapter 14 very well, how that uh, Saul was ready to kill his own son Jonathan for eating honey. If he's able to kill his own son... This guy's moody, man. I, I don't want to go to Bethlehem and say I'm after, after a new king. He might kill me. 
Not only that, but the people of Bethlehem are edgy because the prophet Samuel is coming to their town. It's not a good sign, they think. They remember back to chapter 15 when the prophet Samuel took out a sword and cut the head off of King Agag, the Amalekite. And so now Samuel's coming to their town. Maybe he had a frown when he came into town. And they thought, he's here. Not a good thing. Have you come peaceably? Yeah, don't worry about it. I've come to sacrifice. Now, in the next few verses, we have a great comparison of standards. Standards for choosing people to do the job, whatever job. But in this case, the job of a king. Samuel has a standard. Jesse, the father of David, has a standard. And God has an entirely different one. First of all, let's look at Samuel's standard, which is that of appearance. Verse 6, So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is the guy, he thinks. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord looks at the outward appearance, or for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab, this is now from the eldest down to the youngest, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Isn't it interesting that even Samuel is looking for a king that resembles the very king God has just rejected? It was Saul that was called tall, handsome, head and shoulders above everybody else. He looked like a king. Samuel comes to Bethlehem and sees Eliab and assumes by his appearance, so much so that God has to say, wrong, you're looking at his appearance. He thinks this definitely is the king. He looks so royal, so Schwarzenegger-esque. This guy's a star. He can do the job. In fact, maybe he walked by and Eliab said, hasta la vista, baby. We don't know, of course. I'm adding to the text at this point. But God says something interesting. Man looks at the outward appearance. You know, that's just a fact of life. It may not ought to be so, but it is. We look at the outward appearance. We are appearance-oriented, all of us. You might say, I'm not. Let me ask you something. Do you have a mirror in your home? All of us are. We have mirrors. Some of us love them. Many of us hate them because they tell us the truth about ourselves when we look at them. But we use them to change our appearance. We want to change. We want to give off some appearance. When we shop for clothes, we want certain kinds of clothes depending on what image you're trying to project, whether you want to look cool or grungy or preppy or avant-garde or whatever. You have some image, and we all want to make an impression on people. It can be dangerous. It can be a mistake, but we do. I heard about a lawyer, first day on the job in his brand-new office, wanted to give off the aura that he was important. And he sees somebody walking toward his office, thinks it's his first prospective client, so he wants to impress him. He picks up the phone and carries on a fake conversation. Yeah, John, about that big merger, $3 million, I don't think is quite enough. 
I'll be at the factory myself tomorrow to handle it personally. On and on he went. Then he finally hung up the phone as the prospective client entered the room. And the lawyer said, And how may I help you? And the man smiled and said, I'm here to hook up your telephone. (laughs) Oops. Didn't impress him. Called his bluff. Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, Eureka! This is the king, the Lord's anointed. God immediately went, push the reject button. That's not the guy. And so he did with each of them. Be careful when it comes to appearance when you make a choice. Don't choose based only on appearance, whether it's a leader or it's a spouse. I'm not saying appearance isn't important, but if there's one thing that we know will change... It's our body. It changes. You know, there's a window of time in life where we we look good. It's a very small window. It closes very quickly. It fades very rapidly. That's why the Bible tells us in Proverbs, charm is deceitful, beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. There's a prophet looking at the sons thinking, this guy looks good. His appearance is good. He's the king. Wrong. Bring us to the next guy, David's father named Jesse. He also has a standard. Look at verse 11. Samuel said to Jesse, he's a bit bewildered at this point, are all the young men here? And then he said, there remains yet the youngest. There he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Why do you do that? Why is his son still out in the field? It was Samuel who said, assemble the whole family. This is a family feast. David was Jesse's, oh yeah, I almost forgot son. He was outside. Oh yeah, we got another kid. He's into FFA. He's watching the sheep outside. (laughs) He's the youngest, he said. That's a very revealing term. It means more than just youth. We don't know exactly, but we can guess that he was probably about 16 years of age at this time. But the fact that his dad called him the youngest indicates that he was not just youthful, but he was ill-esteemed by his father. As if to say, Hey, if if you're looking for a king, let me just tell you right now, this kid isn't the one. He was the one. Who would have thought that day in all of Bethlehem that that kid watching those smelly sheep was the next king, slayer of giants, and that one day the very city that they were in Bethlehem would be called the city of David? Nobody. That's the beauty of this, isn't it? And it's the tragedy of this. Overlooked by men graded on appearance, graded also on age. Brings up a point I just want to touch on before we move on, and that is, parents, be careful that you don't get a message across to your kids by way of maybe comparison with the older ones. Messages like, well, you're never going to amount to much out there watching sheep. Why couldn't you be like Eliab, your oldest, or Abinadab? Look at the drive that your older brother Shama has. Why couldn't you be like that? Maybe he got those messages growing up and he felt 
Dad didn't love me like the other kids. And could it have been that it was this episode that drove David to write later on in Psalm 27, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Could he have been thinking perhaps of the day when God chose him as the king? Everybody else had bypassed him. I want to say a couple things about age before we move to the next. Age is deceptive. What I mean by that is spiritual maturity is not always directly proportional to age. Boy, it would be wonderful if it was that if we have been a Christian 30 years, there's this incredible maturity that we have because of longevity. We've logged in time, and it's the time that makes us mature, but it's not always that way. Charles Spurgeon once said, in the church of God, there are children who are 70 years old, spiritually speaking. He also said, the Lord can cause his people to grow rapidly and far outstrip their years. You can have somebody quite young who is spiritually mature. You can have somebody quite old who is spiritually immature. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. Would to God that the older we get physically, the more mature we get spiritually. But it's not always the case. Samuel was of grade school age when he went into the ministry full-time. Remember that? Joseph, a teenager, when he was brought to Egypt as prime minister, as was Daniel. Jeremiah, a teenager when God called him. Timothy was young. Paul had to say, hey, let no one despise your youth, Timothy. So age can be deceptive. Another thing I want to say is that your, your background may shape the way you are. Certainly it does. But it doesn't have to shape what you will be. You all have a background, as do I. And it makes us who we are today, perhaps. Maybe we've been mistreated, neglected. But that doesn't have to hound you and mold what you're going to be tomorrow. Maybe you were the kid in the family. People thought, he'll never amount to anything. She'll never amount to anything. Maybe you were the one in school nobody hung out with. Maybe you were the last one that they picked for the teams. When they divided up the teams, they said, okay, you and the, the great players got chosen, and then there's always Skip. What do we do with him? Well, okay, I get him. He's on my team. Maybe you were the one that was last in people's minds when it came to voting for most likely to succeed. Remember the back of the high school annual? Let me just say that those that people pass over are often the very ones God has selected. God has chosen the foolish things of this world. God has chosen the weak things of this world. God has chosen the base things. That's how God works. Do you know God is attracted to weakness? So different from the way we we want. Confidence, might. God says, I'll take the weak ones. Watch what I'll do with them. David. Brings us to God's standard next, which is the heart. Book of verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. That means he was red-haired, with bright eyes, good-looking. Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Why is he the one? We're already told. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Samuel looked at appearance. Jesse looked at age. God looked at the heart. He pulls the veneer off of the package and looks at the core. U.S. News and World Report had a great little article about manufacturing in America. 
Many companies are keeping the same package, but they're scrimping on the contents. And they gave an example of a laundry detergent. Same box that it always had, but they used to have 61 ounces. Now they have 55 ounces. What God is saying to Samuel and Jesse is, hey, you guys are looking at the box. I'm looking at the contents. I'm looking at the heart. The core of the individual, quite apart from the externals, I'm looking at the internals. Go back with me to chapter 13 for just a moment. I want you to look with me at a phrase that we mentioned last week. We need to see it this week. Chapter 13, verse 14. The prophet Samuel to the king, King Saul. But now the kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. You know that David is the only one in all the Bible with that descriptor, a man after God's own heart? You know, if there's anything to aspire to, I think this is it. What does that mean, to be somebody after God's own heart? One translation says, one who is after his mind. Another translation, I think it's the Knox translation, says, one to fulfill God's purposes. In other words, a person after God's own heart is somebody who wants what God wants. It's somebody who loves what God loves. It's somebody who hates what God hates. You're on the same track. You're after the same target. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. Saul was a man after his own glory. David wanted to give God the glory. Their hearts beat as one. And so God described him as a man after my own heart. Now we close out with verse 13. This young, red-headed kid is anointed. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose and he went to Ramah. How shocked do you think David was? Comes in from the field, smells like sheep. Probably the older brothers were dressed up. Hey, Samuel's coming for a feast. They looked the part. And this kid comes in. Yeah, what's going on, man? And the prophet takes a horn of olive oil and throws it on his head. And it goes down his brow, on his face, and down his robe. And I know that sounds gross, but it was an anointing. And that anointing was accompanied by a spiritual anointing. The Spirit of God came upon that little red-headed shepherd kid that everybody overlooked. In other words, God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies those he calls. Everybody bypassed him. God selected him, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And they all thought, him? Samuel may have even thought as he's pouring the oil on, him? And Dad went, him? And David went, me? God said, that's the one. I'm looking at the heart. Here's a boy who will become a man, who will become a legend. A man after my own heart. He was a nobody. 
To God, he was a king. And that king would provide a lineage for the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the son of David. In fact, above those very skies, a thousand years later, the angels would say to the shepherds, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Isn't that great? A nobody to everybody, but the somebody who counted, and that's God. He's my man. He'll become a legend. In Paris, there was once an opera house that promised one of the very famous European stars to come and sing on a particular night. Tickets were sold. It was, it was oversold. Everything was sold out. They gathered for the performance. Great anticipation filled the house. But the singer became sick earlier that day, unable to sing. So at the appointed time, the opera house manager walks on stage. Ladies and gentlemen, we're glad you came. However, the the very star that you have come to hear sing tonight has fallen ill. But in his place, and they announced somebody who would stand in, and everybody groaned, didn't even want to hear who the guy was. They turned from anticipation to anger and frustration. Imagine having to sing to that crowd. But the stand-in sang beautifully, gave it his best, put his heart into it. And when he finished his performance... Because he was not the star they anticipated, there was a dead silence over the auditorium, a disapproval. It was a silence you could hear. Just then, in the midst of the silence, a young boy shouted from the balcony, Daddy, I think you were wonderful. And just then, everybody broke into applause. The drama in Bethlehem that day was sort of like that. The prophet Samuel came to announce, Your king Saul will not be singing anymore. God has selected a new star. His name is David. He will be the king. He will slay the giant. He will bring the legacy. He will be the legend. That drama was also replayed Years later, when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem and did come to Israel. And wouldn't you know it, just as David was not the one people selected, Jesus Christ himself was also rejected by his own people. And still today, people look at Jesus and they go, no thanks. I'd like another Savior. I'd like somebody else. I'll make my own up. And they'll pass Jesus by as readily as David was passed by. In closing, as God, the Bible says, his eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are toward him. When God stops and looks at your heart, what does he see? A man, a woman after his own heart? Does he see somebody like Saul, self-consumed? Or does he see someone that people would pass over, but God say, Just yield yourself to me and watch. Father, we pray that our hearts would be loyal toward you, that we would be people after your own heart, because you don't care how we look. You don't care about our age, whether we are young or old or somewhere in between. You care about the contents, not the box. 
And so, Lord, we bear our hearts openly before you. And we pray, Lord, that you'd make any necessary changes so that we could be happily used by God. Because you have chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things and the base things, and that makes us all very happy because we know that you can use us. Do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.